Welcome, everybody, to this episode of The Call Sheet. I'm your host, filmmaker AJ Wedding, flipping through my old call sheets, looking for interesting guests in the film and TV industry. Uh, This is a very special episode because I'm sitting here in the conference room at Fonco Studios, which is now an office that I'm involved in in some ways, which we'll talk about later. But today we're here to talk with the amazing uh, model maker, filmmaker, producer, host, judge, you name it, he's done it. He's he's big in the film industry. He's been involved in pretty much every movie I've ever wanted to be a part of. <laughs> Welcome, Fawn Davis. Wow, that's uh, quite the intro. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you, you really have been uh, working in all of the best uh, movies. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. It's been a good yeah, it's been a good run, I'd say. I, I say that every year, and every year I feel just better and better. It's a, it's a good job. That's amazing. So t- tell me how tell me how you got started. I mean, obviously, uh, were you born in Vietnam? Yeah, yeah. Um, I was born in uh, Saigon, Vietnam in 1970 uh, at Tonson Air Force Base. Uh, my dad loved to brag about this, but I was born in uh, General Westmoreland's hospital room. <laughs> because they didn't have any other rooms at the Air Force Base. Um, and then uh, my family moved to the United States here, actually to Southern California, not far from where we're at now, um, Edwards Air Force Base uh, in 1975, uh, at the very end of the Vietnam War. Wow. And when did you start getting into the film industry? I think I might have, let's see, it would have been, we, we, we ended up moving to Lancaster, uh, just outside of Edwards, so that we wouldn't have to live on base. My dad hated living on base, um, but that's I went to see Star Wars at a drive-in movie theater in 1977, and I was seven. I was just about to turn seven years old, and uh, no, I might have been seven because we, you know, our family would never go to movies on opening night or or week or month even. We would have to wait until it was at dollar night, so everyone at school saw it before I saw. It, but Star Wars came out. And we went to see it at the drive-in, and, and uh, I thought that was an amazing movie. Just like everyone at that time, none of us had seen anything like it. And then uh, I went to my school library, and I found the Making of Star Wars book. And in that book, there, there were pictures of professional model makers. Uh, people that I ended up working with, by the way, which is freaking unbelievable to me. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, so I, I looked at that book, and I'm like, that's a job? I could be a bottle maker as a job, you know, and then from that moment forward, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. Um, I, I didn't, of course, at that age, have any idea how uh, achievable it was, but I did eventually get to do exactly what I wanted with the people that were in that book at Industrial Light and Magic. So yeah, what a ride. Well, t- tell me how you got there, because obviously you, you had the dream right there and and you've now lived the dream, but what were the steps in between? Like, how did you get from... I'm going to make my own models at home to I'm going to do this as a job. Yeah, it was it was a long road. Uh, I started in the industry in the early 80s. Um, I, I got sidetracked quite a few times, but I always this is something I tell uh, younger people uh, when I talk about education and, and careers um, that your career is like a, a large container ship. You know, it could take miles just to turn around or miles to stop. You know, and you just got to keep on that trajectory and then you'll eventually get to your destination. And that's the way it was for me. I think I 
it took me probably nine years in the industry to get to ILM. Um, and it was just a lot of uh, projects and companies and jobs and opportunities that would all keep me pointed in that direction. So I worked hard to develop a reputation for doing really unusual things, you know, uh, difficult builds, mechanical builds, uh, miniatures, um, uh, the reverse of miniatures, things that are oversized, you know, just having a portfolio that was really diverse and filled with really unusual <laughs> items helped a lot, you know. And did you start out in that sort of uh, the Roger Corman group of people or did you? Uh... Yeah, it, was, it wasn't necessarily, it wasn't Roger Corman, but it was pretty close. We It was a small company. It was, uh, you know, I would say some of the work that helped me get to uh, to my career started at um, Colossal Pictures. So I worked for a number of different scenery companies and I did re develop a reputation for doing props within those set companies and doing electrical and mechanical gags, you know, so they, you know, I was a good troubleshooter. Um, but Colossal Pictures actually had a model shop and that was the first place I ever worked at that had a model shop. And I worked really, really hard to get to know the people in that department and to prove that I was capable of doing professional model making, even though I had never done it before that company. And eventually I got to do it. The stuff we were doing was all like music videos, television commercials. Um, there was some low budget movie stuff in there, um, but it wasn't it wasn't big. It wasn't big feature films or anything like that. Colossal had done work on the uh, some bigger movies like Ghostbusters two and I think Top Gun. Uh, so they had they had a couple things in there, but it it wasn't a company known for features. Um, but it was a perfect place for me to really gain experience and. Learn little things like the lingo. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of a lot of gear and a lot of tools and a lot of uh, just being on stage is it's a whole different um, kind of etiquette, you know. And uh, learning that there was perfect. Um, and it was hard. It was really hard. That was a tough company to work for because it was a lot of hours, uh, mostly younger people, and we were just uh, running, running the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, it's there's never enough time to finish anything. You know, it's a, it's like they say about movies. I think it's the same way with models. You know, it's models are never finished; they're just abandoned. Yeah, yeah, that's that's <laughs> that's a very popular saying in the field for sure. <laughs> so, so you're working at Colossal, and then um, what got you to that next step? The the really cool thing about Colossal was we did a lot of stop motion. So I was working on Hershey Kiss commercials. If you remember those in the late '80s, the dancing Hershey Kiss uh things there was a uh, um twizzlers commercials there was uh tire commercials but the big one the big account that they had was pillsbury doughboy and so um i was building sets and sweeps um uh and uh you know kitchens things that you would need in a pillsbury doughboy commercial that look like real things but you can't shoot stop motion in a real kitchen you have to make a fake one that is bulletproof because nothing can move in stop motion and had to have special access for the animators. So there were these real specialty sets. Um, and because I had worked with those people on stop motion projects, that was my springboard into getting into Skellington Productions, which was a stop motion studio headed up by Henry Selleck. And Henry was one of the directors at Colossal Pictures. So that was, that was the connection. And he went to school with Tim Burton and, uh, you know, so Nightmare Before Christmas became my first feature film outside of Colossal Pictures. 
Actually, it was my first feature film, and it was outside of Colossal Pictures. But um, yeah, so that what an amazing, lucky uh, thing to get that movie as my first movie. You know, people love that movie. And, and we, we didn't know it at the time. We didn't know what we were doing. We didn't know it would become what it is today. Um, it was just, we were just having a lot of fun. And it was just a really great group of people, you know, making that movie. Seemed like it. I mean, there was a great um, documentary about it on Netflix recently. Um, movies that made, Christmas movies that made us, I think, that you were also featured in there. Yeah. Um, really interesting story. Some of that I didn't know. I, I didn't realize Tim Burton didn't direct it. And I yeah. feel so stupid not knowing that. But. Yeah, that show did a really good job of asking different questions than, than you would normally get and really outlining what it was like to be there. Uh, so I thought that was pretty fun. It was a fun show to uh, participate in. So uh, is, is that when you moved up north? Because I think a lot of that was up there. Well, yeah, all of that was up there. Um, you know, I was living in San Francisco and I worked at nine different companies, including Colossal Pictures, until I hit Skellington Productions. And then we were there just 50 hours a week for two and a half years making that movie. Uh, spent a little time freelance in between movies, but then we did James and the Giant Peach. For, so it was almost a full five years just at that one company to make those two movies. Um, and that was all in San Francisco, south of Market. I actually moved into a warehouse space, a live workspace, one block from the studio. <laughs> so I had the best commute in the world for quite a while. Um, and then it was shortly after James and the Giant Peach that I was able to get uh, work at Industrial Light and Magic, which was also up in, uh, it was just north of San Francisco and Marin. So what was that like? I mean, the first day you walk into ILM. The first day I... I went for my interview. I actually got a ticket driving home <laughs> because I was so excited. <laughs> I didn't realize that I was doing 85 <laughs> down the 101. I got pulled over. It was a funny story. This is a funny story. I was Basically, I went to do the interview. Uh, luckily, a lot of the people that I worked with at Skellington Productions were now working at ILM because Skellington had uh, closed down. And um, so they were already there. And so when I went for my interview, they were all popping into the office to say, hi, Mark Anderson, the head of the model shop, didn't even get a look at my portfolio because we were interrupted so many times. That actually upset me a little bit because I worked so hard to build a portfolio. <laughs> but he finally just closed it and said, can you start tomorrow? On my uh, drive home from that interview, I was just I was just on, in such a uh, excited state that I didn't realize not only that I was driving really fast on my motorcycle, but that there was a, a highway patrol following me for about three miles with their lights on and sirens. <laughs> and I had no clue. So when I pulled over, he was really worked up because he thought I was trying to run. <laughs> he thought he was in a high-speed chase. And I'm like, I just got a job. I'm sorry. <laughs> Not just a job, my dream job, you know. He yeah, said, well, you're going to have to work extra hours to pay this ticket, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> and I wore, I remember, uh, that was still back. You know, then I feel like things were a little different then than they are now. Like I wore a suit to that interview. I don't think I've ever <laughs> worn a suit to an interview since. Because um, now it's like as artists, you you look weird in a suit in, in certain settings. Yeah. Um, Suits are for agents and lawyers. Right, right. So, um, but I wore a suit and I remember I wore a Mickey Mouse tie, which is hilarious because, and he was like, why are you wearing a Mickey Mouse tie to ILM? Because uh, they didn't own him at that time. And I said, uh, well, hire me and this will be a Darth Vader tie. <laughs> <laughs> I've always had a good sense of humor. I mean, that's, that's I think, really an important part of success also is just getting along with people. 
and humor is a really great way to, uh, you know, uh, make the, the very difficult work that you're doing feel easier. Oh, sure. I mean, painstaking work. I mean, the details that you guys put into every model you build, it's, it's really amazing. And some of the techniques, I mean, I've watched some of your, um, how to videos that you've done and I mean, it's just a ton of work. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's more than most people realize. Yeah. Cause, uh, often you're, you're creating every single object that's on a model. Right. You know, so, I mean, there is kit bashing and there are techniques where you can kind of speed things along, but there, there, are, there are plenty of examples of models that were done a hundred percent from scratch. And that's, uh, every single one of those things has to be made somehow. Oh yeah. And I feel like, uh, model making, uh, if it had a dip at all, it's starting to make a resurgence because of virtual production. Because now I, th- I don't think a lot of people realize that maybe some of the best models you see in Mandalorian are actual physical models that have been scanned and put into the system. And I know you have some experience in that as well. Yeah, yeah. It's turned out to be an incredible shortcut for for people entering into virtual production because, um, or actually we, I mean, we, we did it at ILM too, to a certain extent. But if you start with the miniature um, and you photograph it, and you maybe laser scan it and then use the photographs for the textures, it ends up being a really fast way to get something looking photo real. You know, getting models into Unreal, that's really going to propel miniatures and that side of things. It's interesting for us as model makers because we have this pretty big decision when we first start a model in what scale we're going to make it. So if it's something we see from far away, we might make it in like 1,200 or 1,000 scale, really tiny scale. Uh, but if it's, if it's something close, we might want to go six scale or quarter scale or, you know, something rather large. Um, but with Unreal, it's been really liberating because we could build a 1200 scale model and use it in the same shot as a 24 scale model because you just scale it in the computer. So you get all the benefits of using computer graphics and computer tools, but um, the, the, re- the realism and the kind of grittiness of reality uh, from building the miniatures. So it's, 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 yeah, I could, obviously I could go on for a while, but it's, it's very exciting. And, and yeah, it is, it is exciting to see uh, a need for it. I think the other thing that drives it is also um, screen resolution, you know, cause I think you could get away with a lot more uh, low res computer graphics when you, we were doing just 1080 but now everything's moving to 4K and now you've got cameras that shoot 12K and it's only going to uh, become more uh, dominant in the industry. And, uh, you know, to render that, to texture it, to do all the things that we do with the miniature in a CG asset uh, can oftentimes be more work sure. than just building it and photographing it and scanning it. Well, yeah, I mean, everything these days. I mean, I remember a, a amateur model maker, a friend of mine, who is really detail oriented as well. He probably could have worked in the industry though. I don't know how fast he is. He and I went to the Star Trek experience in Vegas back when it was a thing. Huge Star Trek fans, obviously. And um, we were touring the like museum of props and they would have like a, um, a communicator or um, what do you call the medical device? Tricorders. The tricorders. Yeah, yeah. I went to the same exhibit, by the way. Oh yeah. So you <laughs> yeah. probably know what I'm going to yeah, say. Is that the Hilton in, in Vegas. Yeah. Oh yeah. Cause, cause you look at it. And it looks like it was painted in about five minutes. Yeah. And the thing is, that's all the resolution they needed, right? Because they were, you know, four by three TVs that weren't HD. And it looks yeah. real, 
when you're looking at it on screen. And he said, they, that wasn't used on the show. There's no way. Well, yeah, some of that older stuff, you know, that was back when uh, it was standard TV resolution was 640 by 480, which <laughs> looks like a postage stamp on, on yeah. one of our monitors that we use now. Uh, it's crazy to think that that was ever the case. But yeah, no, I remember working in that field too. We would do things and we would kind of squint our eyes and blur our vision to see if it was ready for shooting. <laughs> Because you didn't want to spend extra time on it to make it better than the camera really saw it. So we used to do some really, really messy stuff because it was about cranking it out and how does it look on camera. Um, and that Star Trek stuff is a great example because you see it kind of improve through the years based on the resolution of the cameras. Yeah, we got we also got to work with uh, um, CBS on doing restoration on all those things. So we had oh, to wow. Handle and... and yeah, some of them are ma just made out of balsa wood, carved out of balsa wood and spray painted and slapped some stickers on it. And that was that was Star Trek Next Generation stuff. Yeah. So that's amazing. I mean, what they were able to fool us with, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Yeah. There's still a certain amount of that that happens, but um, it was certainly a lot easier when when screen resolution was low. <laughs> right. I'm, I'm sure you remember when uh, a lot of live television shows switched to HD, they had to rebuild their sets. Oh, yeah. Because they look so bad. It made me wonder how bad were they? It's like, does it look like, you you, you know, uh, when you go into a, a Motel 6 or something, <laughs> but it's a talk show set? I mean, it's like <laughs> old carpet. And, uh, you know, that's what I just picture. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's go back to uh, you at ILM. You just got started. So what what was the first job that you guys were working on at ILM? Um, I got to work on, it was, okay, my boss first was uh, Lauren Peterson, which was Again, really amazing because he was one of those people that I saw in those books. You know, he wrote a book on. He wrote. I was going to say, isn't that book his book right there? In galaxy, yeah, <laughs> it's an incredible, huge book that chronicles the early years at ILM. So, he was my first boss, um, and it was uh, myself and Grant Imahara. Uh, we were wiring lights into a model of the Global Olympic Village for an AT and T commercial, where they wanted to show the completed global Olympic village, but it they were still like building it for real. Um, and so they didn't have any, they couldn't have any footage of it. So we made a miniature of it and they comped in people and that became the commercial for the Olympics. Nice. Um, and I, I, you know, a lot of the work that I did there when I first started was in commercials. There was a lot of commercials work and uh, it's kind of how you, uh, it was like the proving ground for new model makers uh, they often wouldn't put you on features until you could prove yourself in the world of commercials. Not saying that they, you wouldn't do both forever there, but um, just that was, that was just a really good way for them to test because the stakes are lower on commercials than they are for features. Um, but I, I, th I think it did pretty good, and I ended up uh, supervising in that. That's how I worked my way into supervising was I was supervising on commercials. Um, so uh, I, I was an unusual model maker at ILM in the sense that I was a generalist. And at the time, you know, they had people who worked in the machine shop and they had carpenters, they had mold makers, they had painters, and they had a lot of people that would just uh, stay in one department, really. Um, and I did everything <laughs> because I like to do everything. Um, well, that makes a good so supervisor, I feel like, too, because you know everyone's job to a certain degree. Bingo. And I think and you could speak their vocabulary. And, uh, you know, I think that that really, uh, you know, helped in, in my ability to lead teams, just to understand what each team was actually doing and be able to speak their language. For sure. 
So tell me this, of all the people that worked at ILM around you at the time, did any of you have any sort of hope or dream or sense that Star Wars was ever going to come back? Because I know he had said, nope, it's not coming back. Yeah, we had no idea. When we started there, um, there wasn't even talk of Star Wars. It was something that people would talk about their work on Star Wars. You know, the old timers would say, you know, back on Jedi, you know, you'd hear that comment back on Empire, you know. Uh, But yeah, there was it was pretty uh, dead set. In, in George Lucas's mind at the time that he was never going to return to Star Wars. It's funny. I'm going to tell a story about uh, um, Jim Fong. He was a guy at Galoob Toys. And I, I I would love to chronicle this and like really fact check it. But I'm pretty sure that he was responsible for the entire resurgence of the Star Wars series. This I could trace it down to this one guy. <laughs> and the reason is... Uh, back in 84, all the Star Wars product became incredibly unpopular. People were just not into Star Wars after Return of the Jedi came out. Uh, there just wasn't a lot of interest. So you could find this stuff on sale racks at all the stores. Like, it just fell out of favor. It kind of ran its course, and that's the way everyone kind of saw it. So Star Wars was gone uh, in, in the world of merchandise and movies and everything else. Um, and in the 90s, there was uh, Jim Fong over at Galoob Toys was one of the designers in the um, design department. And he went to his supervisor and he says, you know, they were looking for ideas of what to do with micro machines besides cars. And he was like, what if we did uh, Star Wars micro machines? And, and no one at the time was doing Star Wars product. But he, he just thought, man, you know, I really enjoyed that when I was a kid. Now I'm an adult. I would buy it as an adult. I think kids would buy it. I think it's a good idea. His boss uh, proposed the idea, uh, took credit for it. Of course. <laughs> Which is terrible. But uh, they, so 80s. It they got licensing from Lucasfilm. And, and they came out with the Micro Machines. And they sold really, really well. And I think that that, you know, again, this is where the fact checking would, would be fun. Uh, you know, Kenner Toys still had the license or could easily get the license. I don't know how it actually went down. But Kenner Toys started making Star Wars action figures again. And those were so popular, people were literally fighting over them at Toys R Us in the aisle when they unboxed them. It was unbelievable. And I, and I remember that I think that, you know, because the product was doing well, and people were starting to think, man, we should license Star Wars. And so the Star Wars product was starting to come out. Come out, And I think that might be, again, we'll have to ask George, but uh, I think that might be the reason why George Lucas was like, huh, maybe there's something here. Uh, maybe we should keep doing more Star Wars, you know? I do know that he had mentioned that he wanted to do the Star Wars special editions, uh, not to just go back and do things that he couldn't do because of a lack of technology, but to test the waters. And if the special editions did good, he wanted to then do the prequels. Of course, when the special editions came out, you know, opening night did the same thing it did the first time those movies came out, broke all records, you know. So uh, Star Wars was alive and well, and that's that's how we ended up doing the prequels is because of the special editions. And I feel like the special editions came about because of the licensing, and that came from Jim, Jim Fong, so... 
Yeah. <laughs> That's my Jim Fong story. <laughs> he doesn't know I talk about this at all, but I, I've always been fascinated with it because wouldn't that's sort of like that scene in Star Wars, going back to Star Wars, where uh, R5-D4 blows his motivator. Like, what if he didn't blow his motivator? That would change the entire the arc of the story, yeah. right? <laughs> and that, that's what I think about Jim Fong. If he hadn't come up with that idea for Micro Machines, would we have the Star Wars we have today? Yeah, and just think about like, uh, no, no, it's true. Like there's so many different um, building blocks for that. I mean, the when when VHS became a thing, right, and and beta and people could have home movies because, you know, I was born in 77. So I didn't I wasn't around for Star Wars until maybe I was seven or eight watching it on home video. And so when the they re-released the special editions, for me, that was like. Oh my God, because I've been watching this movie, you know, a hundred times a day. <laughs> so I don't think that the industry realized that it had so much longevity in home video. Yeah. And that proved it, those special editions. Maybe that was also part of it for George. Yeah, it's true. It's funny. I, yeah, thinking back, I think I might have played my Star Wars VHS tape so many times it broke. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah, otherwise we'd all still be watching that first version, you know, before Greedo shot first. You know? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, pretty pretty fun. So, yeah, it was exciting. When we started working on Star Wars at ILM, that was, that was a huge deal for me because that was the reason I got into the industry in the first place. It was this, and to work on the original movies that inspired me to get into this work was like a, a kind of a weird form of time travel to go back and work on the movie, you know, is to work on the movies that inspired me. Who, who gets to do that? What a great opportunity that was. So uh, the timing was really great. Oh, yeah. And then, of course, the, the prequels were a lot of fun. Um, I remember you know. seeing a photo of you after, I think the first one came out and I was reading um, FX Magazine and there's this great photo of you um, inside. Inside the hangar. Inside the hangar. Yeah. And like, I was like, oh my God, that's like, because, you know, as a wannabe filmmaker as well, I was just like, that's what I want to do. You know, yeah. was, that was part of what made me come out to L.A. was reading that magazine and seeing those photos. Of, this is how they make this stuff. It's, you know, okay, yeah, incredible. Yeah, just so, so fortunate. Um, that was the first time I was ever in Cinefx magazine. <laughs> I was in there a bunch, you know, in the years uh, after that. Um, but that was my first picture. And that's still, I think... That might be my favorite behind the scenes picture ever. And that was my first picture in Cinefx. And someone had told me, I remember I was, we were on another movie, of course, and we, I was out on stage and a buddy of mine came in. He goes, oh man, you won't believe it. The new issue of Cinefx is out and you're a half a page and it's this incredible photo. And he was describing it all to me. And I got excited for just a split second, but we used to practical joke each other all the time. So I was like, yeah, yeah, sure I am. Cause he didn't have it with him. <laughs> and I didn't believe him. I'm like, I got to get to work. Get out of here, you know. And then he had to come back with the magazine. And sure enough, there it was. What a, what a, yeah, that was a big day. That's amazing. Know, as a model maker, it was always a big deal to get in Cinefix. That was like oh, a, sure. now I have arrived kind of feeling, you know. <laughs> yeah. That's your Oscar right there. That's yeah. The, uh, yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, so you worked on all the prequels, I'm assuming. Uh, yeah. And then, yeah. you know, things things at ILM slowed down considerably after we finished uh, Revenge of the Sith. You know, we were still doing a lot of features and stuff, but there was a move to sell off the practical division. Basically, what happened is, is Lucasfilm moved to the Presidio, 
And when they moved to the Presidio, they're really hyper-focused on CG. And George Lucas, if you look at the, the legacy of George Lucas, you know, one of the, the biggest things that you'll notice is he's going to go down in history. Or he, he has gone down in history of, of uh, movies. I just word it that way because he's still making history, you know. Um, but he uh, will always be known as an innovator. Mm-hmm. You know, he brought nonlinear editing. You know, Pixar started at Lucasfilm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, th- there were so many groundbreaking pieces of technology. You know, he he did the the first you know uh, mocap um, army of people. You know, he he was always on the cutting edge and pushing the envelope, even if he had to be the first one to do the effect, which is always tough because it's never going to be as good as everyone who follows you. You know, so he put himself at risk to stay on the cutting edge to be the innovator. And I think that there was, he, he had expressed that having the practical division as a, a, a crutch, so to speak, uh, would keep ILM from innovating in computer graphics as long as they oh, could wow. continue to do that. So when they moved to the Presidio, there was no plan to bring the practical division to the Presidio. Um, and then once they had moved to the Presidio, we were still working remotely at the old campus there in San Rafael. Uh, and the rest of ILM was in San Francisco. That's when they had announced that they had actually sold the practical division to another company. And so we still continued to work with ILM as uh, Kerner FX, Kerner Studios. Yeah, so Kerner Studios was going through a lot of different uh, changes and they were uh, developing a stereoscopic camera. They were developing stereoscopic monitors. There was a lot of talent. Some of the most talented people in the world were attracted to ILM. So they had this incredible team of people and they really wanted to like see what they could do with that. Uh, but in the meantime, I got an offer to join the art department up at um, Leica, Leica Entertainment. Henry Selleck was making Coraline. And my buddy Bill Bowes was up there. He was a production designer when the movie first started. And he called me up and he said, hey, Fawn, we're going to get the band back together. We're all going to get together and we're going to do a stop motion movie. It'll be like old times, you know. And I was like, okay, let's do it, you know. (laughs) It was things were slow in the Bay Area. So I went up to Portland for about a year and a half. Um, Unfortunately, Bill didn't end up production designing on the movie. But um, uh, I had moved my whole family up there. So I stuck around and, and we made an incredible movie. And, and so that was, that was fun. It was fun to get back into stop motion and, and, uh, to do all that crazy stuff Henry likes to do with the force perspectives. And, uh, he did some really innovative, fun stuff with, uh, stereoscopic photography. Uh, we had a whole technique where he would come in and Pete Kozacek would come in and we would sit down in front of a computer and, uh, I would pull up the uh, establishing shot for each space say like in uh Coraline's house for example they would pick a camera position and they would pick a lens and I would match uh that in the computer and then for real world we would I would pull the wall towards camera but then splay the walls out and the floor and the ceiling so that in 2D it looks like normal perspective but in 3D, the wall would be the back wall would be uncomfortably close to you in a way that's very unnatural, right? So it's like a forced perspective that doesn't work, basically. <laughs> and that would be the establishing shot for real world. Other world, uh, we would push the wall back and splay the walls and do everything to make it feel like 
It was more expansive, but in 2D, it would look like a normal shot. So it was this really, really crazy idea because he wanted the real world to feel claustrophobic and the other world to feel um, kind of uh, like, you know, like you can breathe. You can breathe, now, yeah. You know, it's expansive. <laughs> um, so that was that was one of the coolest things ever. Uh, but we, we did that in that movie. I, I don't know if you could tell. I mean... I, th I think in 2D you could still tell because it would also move the camera from that position and shoot all over the place. And, and it drove some people crazy because they're like, that's not going to work. That's not going to be a forced perspective. The perspective is not going to work. But that was the whole point. So I uh, worked on that. And then I went straight from uh, Leica to, um, to Disney uh, working at Image Movers Digital, which was uh, Bob Zemeckis' uh, digital company. Interesting. What, it, what were... What movie was that that they started on when you were there? Oh, we were developing a bunch of stuff, some of which I will never be able to talk about, which is really interesting. <laughs> like never. Because <laughs> we started developing movies and some of them just never uh, came about. The studio was supposed to be uh, around for like a decade and they ended up shutting it down after just two movies. We did uh, a Disney's Christmas Carol with Jim Carrey in it. Um, great cast, a lot of fun. Um, and then we did uh, Mars Needs Moms. And we were in the middle. I think the next movie we were going to launch on was um, uh, Yellow Submarine. We were well on the way to, to doing that movie. And we were also developing uh, what a movie that came out much later uh, called The Walk. Oh, no, wait. Is that the one where he's walking the, yeah, walk, the walk, walk on the yeah, wire? It's, it's, it's the story of Philippe Petit. Right, 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 yeah. right. So that was that was originally originally developed there as well. You know, I don't think uh, Zemeckis gets enough credit for his part in visual development, virtual production. I mean, a lot of the stuff that was developed for some of those movies yeah. is the basis of virtual production. Yeah. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, he again, he's he's kind of in the same league as George Lucas when it comes to innovation. He um with performance capture especially, he coined the term performance capture. Uh there there are other people, I won't say, uh that have tried to take credit for that. <laughs> but he he did he was the first one cuz he was like, you know, these actors are performing. They're not just moving. They're performing, so it's performance capture, it's not mocap. When he did Polar Express, there was some things about the technology that wasn't quite there, and then the the fact that they went with painted characters versus, you know, something more realistic, kind of worked against the 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 um, the technology in a way. Um, so, but he was the first one to try it in that in that form. Yeah, he he does. He deserves a lot of credit, and th and then he just kept adapting and pushing that technology he really wanted to break the um the uncanny valley right, right. you know he really was driven to do that and um uh, one of the things that we've learned is that's just really really hard to do the human brain is trained you know through millions of years of evolution to um recognize the most subtlest of features on a human face because that's survival you right know? So to try to replicate that with computer graphics is going to be difficult. They've come really close and there's some really impressive stuff out there. Um, but it, I, don't, I don't know. Sometimes when, when we're working in that area, it feels like we'll never get there. Yeah, it's pretty close. I mean, the yeah. Unreal just announced that new MetaHumans thing that's like, holy cow, those are 
pretty amazing looking like yeah. off the shelf, you know? Yeah. I'll be really curious to play with that technology for sure. Oh yeah. It really bogs down a computer. I can tell you that much. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. <laughs> well, that's a lot, you know, it's a yeah. lot to process. And that's, that's, that's what I think is, is the hardest thing. Cause you always have to kind of cheat to what your computer can handle. Sure. What, what we found is like, if you design the characters to be somewhat caricatures, right? Not, mm-hmm. not, not, don't even attempt photo reel. Right. But if make you make it, the nose bigger, like yeah. the Scrooge character in Christmas Carol, his chin sticks way out. His mouth is bigger than Jim Carrey's. You know, he's got very exaggerated features mm-hmm. and his character works beautifully. You don't question it. Doesn't feel uncanny. It doesn't feel unnatural at all. So, so you worked with Zemeckis on uh, some amazing projects. Uh, what are some of the other highlights you can think of that were great? I know you worked on Galaxy Quest, which is one of my favorites. Oh, yeah, at ILM we did. Oh man, that was the best because we got to work on all the big franchises. So I got to work in the Star Wars world and Jurassic Park movies and Terminator movies. And, hmm. uh, we did Galaxy Quest, which is kind of a Star Trek movie. <laughs> we did, we did uh, Star Trek, um, man, yeah, just just all the big franchises at the time that uh, I was working there. I think ILM was doing something like seventy five percent of the work in the entire world in VFX. So it was it was the place to get visual effects, and and they were way ahead of the curve than any other company. And then um, I think after Revenge of the Sith. A little bit before then, but really after that, they there were so many people uh, laid off and who left ILM when it slowed down that um, that's when a lot of these other companies sprung up. And a lot of the companies in VFX even today are people that used to work at ILM during that time. Um, isn't it funny now too that isn't ILM like sort of reopening their model making department because of virtual production? Well, they, they've they've always had a little bit in there. Uh, there's a guy, John Goodson, who was one of the model makers at ILM that went over to CG. And he's really good friends with John Knoll, who is one of the visual effects supervisors. And they, they love miniatures, you know. So, so whenever they get a chance, they, they, uh, they, you'll, you'll find those two uh, behind it <laughs> on almost everything they're doing. And then, um, you know, there's, there's some newer people there. I know some people uh, that work on that. I'm not allowed to say much past that, <laughs> I think. <laughs> That's all public. You can see that on YouTube. But um, uh, but yeah, it's it's a, it's it's fun. You know, it's that old saying. We, we've said it for a long time and practical that um, you know, it looks real because it is real. You know, and that's that's really what what uh, at the end of the day is the big argument. For sure. Yeah. Well, it's like uh, I, I interviewed Ian Hunter a few months ago, and great always, guy. Yeah, t- love that guy. Um, we always talked about like explosions and how yeah, a computer can create an explosion and maybe get as photoreal as you can think it would be. But an explosion is an explosion is so chaotic that there's no telling what's going to actually happen unless you actually do it. And so that's why those real explosions, even on like quarter scale or whatever, they look way better than say a digital version of it. Yeah. Yeah. You do get that. You get a lot of happy accidents in practical. That's what I call them. Um, and that's why, you, you, you know, some of the biggest movies today, we're still doing a lot of practicals. A lot of times it's full size, you know, we're getting those kinds of budgets, <laughs> you know. Um, but yeah, the, the miniatures still, it's a great alternative to going full size. <laughs> sure. it's, it, it's a great alternative to trying to achieve it in the computer. Um, 
Dennis Mirren, uh, who worked with us at ILM there, or I worked with him, I should say. He was he is a legend. He has he actually has more Academy Awards than any other living person. Really? Today, yeah. Um, so I would say we should listen to him. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he 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 has a great thing that um, he had said once about how you know you can trick yourself into thinking you've arrived at reality, but it's it's just it's so important to have. Even if you don't use it in final footage, it's it's important to have that something shot on location in the lighting. Uh, it's it's great to have uh, the miniatures, even if it's just for reference. Ninety nine percent of the work is spent doing the one percent that makes it look photo real. <laughs> right, and that always stuck in my head is like, wow, it's true. And if you've ever done CG, and I've worked in both CG and practical, when you're working on those shots. And it's true. Computer technology is amazing. You get to that shot very quickly, but it doesn't look real. And then you spend like the slog, the slog and the real work is that last little bit and making it look real. It's, it's hard because we're always working with budgets and schedules. That, that's what really drives filmmaking, as you know. <laughs> you know I'd like to think it was creativity. Uh, it's certainly a good driver, but it's not what, what, uh, what we all work under. That's right. That's right. Yeah. It's like we were talking about with time. It's like, you know, it, it's you wait forever to get money and you're waiting and you're waiting. And then it's like, you have money, but it's got to be done this week. Yeah. It's like, uh, you know, yeah, you have to spend that money in two months <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and deliver a finished product. Yeah, <laughs> It's nerve wracking. Sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I can sure. imagine sometimes you get on a project and you just don't know how you're going to get it done. That's that's often. And, and yeah, you develop you have to develop this weird sense of confidence. Um, and of course that comes with experience, but, uh, you, you know, it's, it's surprising how many meetings you walk out of and you're, you have no clue how you're going to do it. And you really do have to sit down and think about it, sleep on it, you know, and go, okay, how are we going to do it? And then you also, you know, fortunately we, we work in this incredible collaborative industry where we all trade notes with each other. And we can lean on each other for those those things. So if there's ever something that you feel like there's a better way of doing it, you just ask around and you'll find that better way. I'm, I'm always telling our artists that work at the studio, if you have that voice in your head that says there's a better way or there's probably a better way, then there is. And you just have to ask around. <laughs> and it's usually true. It's so funny. I, I may have told this story before on this podcast, but um, I was my first TV pilot that I made, I had recently moved to town. I think I'd only been here two years and I didn't know a lot about visual effects. Um, and this was a, it was called orbital broadcast one. And it was like a news and review show for sci-fi fans. And we had all these windows out into space and I was like, well, I'm just going to put green screen out there and figure it out. Right. And this was, this was before, you know, it was very easy to track things and all that. And so I had a, a visual effects supervisor stop by and say, uh, that's going to be really hard. And I said, well, they do it on Star Trek. You know, how do they do it on Star Trek? And he says, let's call them. So it comes down to that, you know, collaboration. So they called the production team at Star Trek and they go, oh, we have this big black vellum curtain we glued sequins onto. Do you want to borrow it? And that's how collaborative it is in the in the visual effects yeah, industry. Yeah. It's crazy. And so we borrowed their 60 foot by 20 foot curtain to be our space. We all succeed or fail together. <laughs> it's right. <laughs> yeah, that's, and it's the truth, boy. Yeah, and it's one of the reasons you should never burn bridges in this industry. I feel like I have clients now that were PAs at Fonco up in Northern California when I was up there. 
Um, and you just, you just never know where people are going to go. And it's, and it's great also having like, you know, we're talking about the brain, brain trust, you know? Well, stop me if I'm wrong, but I feel like this is where you, you finally came down to LA and, uh, this is where we met when you came to New Deal Studios. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was at, uh, Image Movers Digital and that, that one, clo- that company closed down that, that it's a reoccurring theme. If you work in VFX, uh, you know, sometimes companies don't close down. The movie just finishes, but you, you know, it's kind of a nomadic lifestyle. And at the, when IMD closed, I ran Fonco Studios exclusively. It was, Fonco was always something that I did between feature films. And it was, it was me and a bunch of my buddies from ILM. Uh, even when I wasn't at Fonco, there was someone running Fonco because it was just a great place to, um, to work on projects when you weren't at ILM. Uh, so it had been around, it's, it's, we're 25 years now with Fonco. Um, but I ran Fonco exclusively for a few years, but the Bay Area um, industry was just drying up. So um, that's when uh, I'd hit up <laughs> uh, Ian Hunter over at New Deal Studios. And I was, I'd been friends with him and Matt Gratzner and Shannon Gans who ran that studio. And they, they were the closest thing to ILM that, that I was aware of. <laughs> yeah, the timing was just good. I, I needed to get out of the Bay Area. I wanted to move to Los Angeles. And so they hired me over at New Deal Studios. And I got to work there for uh, uh, a little over a year. So yeah, at, at New Deal, we did uh, Interstellar, Guardians of the Galaxy. We did some stuff for the Black Sails show. Again, just really fun stuff. Really great stuff. Great crew. Uh, loved working there. Um, but then when things slowed down there, I had to, again, just, uh, reinvent myself as, as we often do. And I rented at a studio here in Los Angeles called Vanaheim Studios, which is a very, very new studio. And they had some, uh, pretty significant bumps in the road and then they eventually folded. And when they folded, um, uh, previous to their folding, I was, uh, renting art department space doing design and development and then shop space, building miniatures and props and crazy weird things. (laughs) And when they folded, I went ahead and took over the studio, which gave Fonco now uh, a much larger uh, footprint. So we have two stages. Uh, We built standing sets. Um, uh, We've just expanded. We've teamed up with Noitum. So now we have a performance capture volume. we uh, teamed up with the Castle Corsetry, so they do all the costumes and soft goods in the building. Um, and uh, we have editorial, we have a sound booth, and now, of course, uh, working with you <laughs> doing uh, <laughs> virtual production stuff. But, um, you know, it's so that's been a crazy wild ride. I swore that I would never run a company again. And then I was here, and then Vanaheim folded, and I was like, well, I could move, or I could just take over. And so I took over, and it's, it, LA's been good to me. It's been a it's been a really great experience, and the studio is thriving, and um, getting to meet people down here, which is uh, you know been amazing, and uh, people are finally I think you know in the last year really starting to take notice. So we're working with all the television companies and more of the feature film companies, and of course tons of new media. Well, I can say uh, you know because having worked at Raleigh Studios now for so many years studio spaces can be very dry and very, you know, nice to have a clean slate sometimes and, and be able to go in and make your own world. But the first time I walked in here, it was like home. It was like, this is the most creative space I've ever seen. Everywhere you look, 
There's art from great movies that you remember. There's, you know, interesting decorations everywhere. Uh, it's, it's more like a, a commune of artists than it is uh, a studio. And I, I love that. I think it's amazing. Yeah, I think that was the, the good fortune of taking over the studio um, at this point in my career. You know, I've, I've done all the work to prove that I'm able to do the work. I've done all the work to build the client base and, and, and you know, just basically I've focused on the business long enough to where now I can say, well, how, how do I continue doing everything that I love to do, but also make it a lot more fun? You know, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to do this to the day I die. So it's, it's, uh, you know, for me, uh, when we built this studio, I wanted every single square inch of the building to reek of creativity is what, the way I call it, the way I say it. Um, because that, to me, that's, that's what makes it fun. You know, I, I love that the, uh, crews that we have here and myself, when I get up in the morning, I'm, I want to go to work. I feel a little weird when I don't go to work. You know, it's like I it's that's the job, the dream job that I always wanted was to be excited about doing it. You know, uh, fortunately for us, a lot of the clients, a lot of people, including yourself or people that we're friends with, you know, and so it's it's less about the networking and the business and all of that kind of stuff. I've done all that. You know, now I can just enjoy working with friends and doing really innovative and creative and fun things. And, you know, one of the things that that we try to do here is the same thing that we used to do at ILM and everywhere else I've worked. We, we innovate, mm -hmm. you know? And so I like to stay on the cutting edge and I like to, that's the one benefit of, well, I guess there's two big benefits of running my own studio. One is I get to decide the direction of the company in that way and to keep us firmly cemented in, in, on the bleeding edge, you know, but also never getting laid off. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you sort of you you uh, let the cat out of the bag. We're about to announce very soon that we're opening uh, what we call Orbital Studios, Orbital Virtual Studios within Funko Studios, uh, where we are going to do LED wall virtual production. Um, but this is going to be a really interesting stage that we're building here. It's kind of the highest uh, production value that you can get from a virtual production so far, as far as all the details go of the technology. Nothing like this has been out yet. Um, I'm sure in five minutes, there'll be something better. <laughs> but for now, we have a, a pretty good setup that we're going to be offering to your clients, to our clients. And uh, we're just really happy to be here. I mean, this there couldn't be a better place for us to get started. Yeah, it's exciting. I think I think it's, it, it, it's a natural fit for us because we are uh, so entrenched in in we're so entrenched in the world of virtual production here you know because we we've been doing now for uh a while uh we've been creating assets uh digital assets for uh cg production a lot of that is going into unreal now um and we're doing a lot of the work in unreal and i'm having to learn unreal and <laughs> it's been and we've we've got some really exciting partnerships you know i've i've been able to work closely with uh um epic and, um, you know, um, uh, David Stump, we're, we're doing a project, a feature film project called Gods of Mars. So that's been really fun to uh, experiment with the technology in that production. Yeah, there's some other stuff I can't, lots of stuff that I can't talk about. <laughs> it's so it's so new. And I, I have to say, I haven't been this excited about a uh, 
visual effects in a long time. And that's why it's so exciting to have you guys here and have the an actual LED wall here and just be able to do all that experimentation and actually work with the technology in-house and be able to support it with all the stuff that we have in the building. You know, so we, we, we have costumes, we have shops. We could do pretty much anything now uh, with you guys here. So that's that's pretty exciting. Yeah, I um, agree. And it's a very... You know, we've 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 worked with a lot of companies. There's a lot of people that are all individually pursuing virtual production, and and it's really great to see everyone meet each other finally. You know, <laughs> I feel like you know it's it's probably a little ways away, but I don't I don't think it's as far as a lot of people think. But I can imagine that the majority of green screens in Los Angeles will be replaced with LED walls. I can really see that as the future. Yeah, I agree. I think so too. I mean, there's there's a place for it, I think, but eventually people are going to start to see how much better this stuff looks and with so much less work. Yeah. Yeah, to just create worlds and put your actors in it <laughs> without compositing. Was, I mean, you know, uh, compositing has come a long way. Sure. But um, yeah, what a, what a, what a crazy idea. I still, I'm still blown away by it. There's going to be technologies, uh, you know, for me, it's usually the simpler things like the laser cutter. I still love watching the laser cutter cut parts. I, I love watching 3d printers work. I love those, those pieces of technology is something very mesmerizing, very cool about it. And I feel like the led wall is going to be one of those things. One day there will be commonplace, but it's still going to be a certain level of magic to it. That just, you'll never get over, you know? It's going to be one of those things. It's going to be one of those really powerful tools. I agree. Well, Fawn, thank you for being on the Call Sheet Podcast. It's my honor. Thank you for having me. Very exciting. I'm very excited for what we're going to do in the next uh, six months or so. We'll see yeah. what happens. We'll, we'll try to break it, and then we'll fix it. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> That's how you learn. That's how it goes. <laughs> <laughs> That's another episode of the Call Sheet in the Books. I'm your host, AJ Wedding. You can follow me on Instagram at ThatDirectorAJ or join our Facebook page, The Call Sheet, for updates on the show. See you next time.